0: Section 26 of The Ego and His Own. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner. My Intercourse Part 3 Edgar Buer invades against the determination of the regent by birth, by chance. But when the people have become... The sole power in the state, page 132. Have we not then in it a master from chance? Why, what is the people? The people has always been only the body of the government. It is many under one hat, a prince's hat, or many under one constitution, and the constitution is the prince. Princes and peoples will persist, so long as both do not collapse, i.e. fall together. If under one constitution there are many peoples, as in the ancient Persian monarchy and today, then these peoples rank only as provinces. For me the people is, in any case, an accidental power, a force of nature, an enemy that I must overcome what is one to think of under the name of an organized people page 132 a people that no longer has a government that governs itself in which therefore no ego stands out prominently a people organized by ostracism the banishment of egos ostracism makes the people autocrat if you speak of the people you must speak of the prince for the people if it is to be a subject and make history must like everything that acts have a head its supreme head whiteling sets this forth in die ulpiacee tyarchi and proudhorn declares un societe pour anzida da aschefell ne puvire the vox populi is now always held up to us and public opinion is to rule our prince certainly the vox populi is at the same time vox dei, but is either of any use and is not the vox principles also vox dei? at this point the nationals may be brought to mind to demand of the thirty-eight states of germany that they shall act as one nation can only be put alongside the senseless desire that thirty-eight swarms of bees led by thirty-eight queen bees shall unite themselves into one swarm bees they all remain but it is not the bees as bees that belong together and can join themselves together it is only that the subject bees are connected with the ruling queens Bees and people are destitute of will, and the instinct of their queens leads them. If one were to point the beads to their beehood, in which at any rate they are all equal to each other, one would be doing the same thing that they are now doing so stormily in pointing the Germans to their Germanhood. Why Germanhood is just like beehood in this very thing that it bears in itself the necessity of cleavages and separations yet without pushing on to the last separation where with the complete carrying through of the process of separating its end appears i mean to the separation of man from man germanhood does indeed divide itself into different peoples and tribes i e beehives But the individual who has the quality of being a German, is still as powerless as the isolated bee, and yet only individuals can enter into union with each other. And all alliances and leagues of people are and remain mechanical compoundings, because those who come together, at least so far as the peoples are regarded, as one that have come together, are destitute of will. Only with the last separation does separation itself end and change to unification. Now the nationals are exerting themselves to set up the abstract, lifeless unity of behood, But the self-owned are going to fight for the unity willed by their own will, for union. This is the token of all reactionary wishes, that they want to set up something general, abstract an empty lifeless concept in distinction from which the self-owned aspire to relieve the robust lively particular from the trashy burden of generalities the reactionaries would be glad to smite a people a nation forth from the earth the self-owned have before their eyes only themselves in essentials the two efforts that are just now the order of the day to wit the restoration of provincial rights and of the old tribal divisions franks bavarians Lusatia, etc and the restoration of the entire nationality coincide in one but the germans will come into unison i e unite themselves only when they knock over their beehood, as well as all the beehives in other words when they are more than germans only then can they form a german union they must not want to turn back into their nationality into the womb in order to be born again but let every one turn into himself how ridiculously sentimental when one german grasps another's hand and presses it with sacred awe because he too is a german with that he is something great but this will certainly still be thought-touching, as long as people are enthusiastic for brotherliness, i.e. as long as they have a family disposition. From the superstition of piety, from brotherliness, or childlikeness, or however else the soft-hearted piety phrases run, from the family spirit, the nationals, who want to have a great family of Germans, cannot liberate themselves. Aside from this, the so-called nationals would only have to understand themselves rightly in order to lift themselves out of their juncture with the good nature Tutumaniacs, for the uniting of material ends and interests, which they demand of the Germans, comes to nothing else than the voluntary union. Carrier inspired cries out, Well, roads are to the more penetrating eye the way to a life of the people, e.g. has not yet anywhere appeared in such significance. Quite right, it will be a life of the people that has nowhere appeared, because it is not a life of the people. So Carrière then combats himself. Page 10. Pure humanity, or manhood, cannot be better represented than by a people fulfilling its mission. Why, by this nationality only is represented, washed-out generality is lower than the form complete in itself, which is itself a whole, and lives as a living member of the truly general, the organized. Why, the people is this very washed-out generality and it is only a man that is the form complete in itself. The impersonality of what they call people-nation is clear also from this, that a people which wants to bring its eye into view to the best of its power puts at its head the ruler without will. It finds itself in the alternative either to be subjected to a prince who realises only himself, individual pleasure, then it does not recognize in the absolute master its own will, the so-called will of the people, or to seat on a throne a prince who gives effort to no will of his own. Then it has a prince without will, whose place some ingenious clockwork would perhaps fill just as well. Therefore insight need go only a step further, Then it becomes clear of itself that the I of the people is an impersonal spiritual power, the law. The people's I, therefore, is a spook, not an I. I am I only by this, that I make myself, i.e., that it is not another who makes me, but I must be my own work. But how is it with this I of the people? Chance plays it into the people's hand, chance gives it this or that born lord, accidents procure it the chosen one. He is not its the sovereign people's product, as I am my product. Conceive of one wanting to talk you into believing that you were not your eye, but Tom or Jack was your eye. But so it is with the people and rightly, for the people has an eye as little as the eleven planets counted together have an eye, though they revolve around a common centre. Bailey's utterance is representative of the slave disposition that folks manifest before the sovereign people as before the prince. I have, says he, no longer any extra reason why the general reason has pronounced itself My first law was the nation's will. As soon as it had assembled, I knew nothing beyond its sovereign will. He would have no extra reason, and yet this extra reason alone accomplishes everything. Just so Mirabeau inveighs in the words, no power on earth has the right to say to the nation's representatives, it is my will. As with the Greeks, There is now a wish to make a man zoon politician, a scientist of the state or political man. So he ranked for a long time as a citizen of heaven. But the Greek fell into ignominy along with his state. The citizen of heaven likewise falls with heaven. We, on the other hand, are not willing to go down along with the people, the nation and nationality not willing to be merely political men or politicians. Since the revolution, they have striven to make the people happy, and in making the people happy, great, etc., they make us unhappy. The people's good hap is my mishap. What empty talk the political liberals utter with empathic decorum is well seen again in Nurex, On taking part in the state. Their complaint is made of those who are indifferent and do not take part, who are not in the full sense citizens, and the author speaks as if one could not be man at all if one did not take a lively part in state affairs, i.e., if one were not a politician. In this he is right, for if the state ranks as the warder of everything human, We can have nothing human without taking part in it. But what does this make out against the egoist? Nothing at all. Because the egoist is to himself the warder of the human and has nothing to say to the state except get out of my sunshine. Only when the state comes in contact with his ownness does the egoist take an active interest in it. If the condition of the state does not bear hard on the closet philosopher, is he to occupy himself with it, because it is his most sacred duty? So long as the state does according to his wish, what need has he to look up from his studies? Let those who form an interest of their own want to have conditions otherwise busy themselves with them. Not now, nor evermore, for sacred duty bring folks to reflect about the state as little as they become disciples of science artists etc from sacred duty egoism alone can impel them to it and will as soon as things have become much worse if you showed folks that their egoism demanded that they busy themselves with state affairs you would not have to call on them long if on the other hand you appeal to their love of fatherland, etc. You will long preach to the deaf hearts in behalf of this service of love. Certainly, in your sense, the egoists will not participate in state affairs at all. The new wreck utters a genuine liberal phrase on page 16. Man completely fulfills his calling only in feeling and knowing himself as a member of humanity and being active as such the individual cannot realize the idea of manhood if he does not stay himself upon all humanity if he does not draw his powers from it like Antius. in the same place it is said man's relation to the res publica is degraded to a purely private matter by the theological view is accordingly made away with by denial as if the political view did otherwise with religion. There, religion is a private matter. If, instead of sacred duty, man's destiny, the calling to full manhood, and similar commandments, it were held up to the people that their self-interest was infringed on when they let everything in the state go as it goes, then, without declamations, they would be addressed as one will have to address them at the decisive moment if he wants to attain his end. Instead of this, the theology-hating author says, if there has ever been a time when the state laid claim to all that are hers, such a time is ours. The thinking man sees in participation in the theory and practice of the state a duty, one of the most sacred duties that rest upon him, and then takes under closer consideration the unconditional necessity that everybody participate in the state. He in whose head or heart or both the state is seated, he who is possessed by the state or the believer in the state is a politician and remains such to all eternity. The state is the most necessary means for the complete development of mankind. It assuredly has been so long as we wanted to develop mankind, but if we want to develop ourselves, it can be to us only a means of hindrance. Can state and people still be reformed and better now? As little as the nobility, the clergy, the church, etc. They can be abrogated, annihilated. Done away with, not reformed. Can I change a piece of nonsense into sense by reforming it, or must I drop it outright? Henceforth, what is to be done is no longer about the state, the form of the state, etc., but about me. With this, all questions about the prince's power, the constitution, etc., sink into their true abyss and their true nothingness. I... This nothing shall put forth my creations from myself. To the chapter of society belongs also the party, whose praise has of late been sung. In the state the party is current, party party who should not join one, but the individual is unique, not a member of the party. He unites freely and separates freely again. The party is nothing but a state in the state, and in this smaller B-state, peace is also to rule just as in the greater. The very people who cry loudest that there must be an opposition in the state, inveigh against every discord in the party, a proof that they too want only a state. All parties are shattered not against the state, but against the ego one hears nothing oftener now than the admonition to remain true to his party party men despise nothing so much as a mugwump one must run with his party through thick and thin and unconditionally approve and represent its chief principles it does not need go quite so badly here as with closed societies because these bind their members to fixed laws or statutes e.g the orders, the society of Jesus, etc. But yet the party ceases to be a union at the same moment at which it makes certain principles binding and wants to have them assured against attacks. But this moment is the very birth act of the party. As party it is already a born society, a dead union, an idea that has become fixed. As a party of absolutism, it cannot will that its members should not doubt the irrefragable truth of this principle. They could cherish this doubt only if they were egoistic enough to want still to be something outside their party, i.e. non-partisans. Non-partisans they cannot be as party men, but only as egoists. If you are a Protestant and belong to that party... You must only justify Protestantism, at most purge it, not reject it. If you are a Christian and belong among men to the Christian party, you cannot be beyond this as a member of this party, but only when your egoism, i.e. non-partianship, impels you to it. What exertions the Christians down to Hegel and the Communists have put forth to make the party strong, They stuck to it that Christianity must contain the eternal truth, and that one needs only to get at it, make sure of it, and justify it. In the short, the party cannot bear non-partianship, and it is in this that egoism appears. What matters the party to me? I shall find enough anyhow who unite with me without swearing allegiance to my flag. He who passes over from one party to another is at once abused as a turncoat. Certainly morality demands that one stand by his party, and to become apostate from it is to spot oneself with the stain of faithlessness. But Onus knows no commandment of faithlessness, adhesion, etc. Onus permits everything, even apostasy, defection. Unconsciously even the moral themselves let themselves be led by this principle when they have to judge one who passes over to their party. Nay, they are likely to be making proselytes. They should only at the same time acquire a consciousness of the fact that one must commit immoral actions in order to commit his own, i.e. here that one must break faith yes even his oath in order to determine himself instead of being determined by moral considerations in the eyes of people of strict moral judgment an apostate always shimmers in equivocal colours and will not easily obtain their confidence for there sticks to him the taint of faithlessness i.e. of an immorality in the lower man this view is found almost generally. Advanced thinkers fall here too, as always, into an uncertainty and bewilderment, and the contradiction necessarily founded in the principle of morality does not, on account of the confusion of their concepts, come clearly to their consciousness. They do not venture to call the apostate downright immoral, because they themselves entice to apostasy to defection, from one religion to another, etc. Still, they cannot give up the standpoint of morality either, and yet here the occasion was to be seized to step outside of morality. Are the own or unique, perchance a party? How could they be owned if they were, e.g. belonged to a party? Or is one to hold with no party? In the very act of joining them and entertaining their circle, one forms a union with them that lasts as long as party and I pursue one and the same goal. But today I still share the party's tendency, as by tomorrow I can do so no longer, and I become untrue to it. The party has nothing binding, obligatory, for me, and I do not have respect for it. If it no longer pleases me, I become its foe. In every party that cares for itself and its persistence, the members are unfree, or better, unowned. In that degree, they lack egoism in that degree, in which they serve this desire of the party. The independence of the party conditions the lack of independence in the party members, a party of whatever kind it may be can never do without a confession of faith for those who belong to the party must believe in its principle it must not be brought in doubt or put in question by them it must be a certain indubitable thing for the party member that is one must belong to a party body and soul else one is not truly a party man but more or less an egoist harbour a doubt of Christianity, and you are already no longer a true Christian. You have lifted yourself to the effrontery of putting a question beyond it and hailing Christianity before your egoistic judgment seat. You have sinned against Christianity. This party cause, for it is surely not e.g. a cause for the Jews, another party. But well for you if you do not let yourself be affrighted. Your effrontery helps you to own this. So then an egoist could never embrace a party or take up with a party? Oh yes, only he cannot let himself be embraced and taken up by the party. For him the party remains all the time nothing but a gathering. He is one of the party. He takes part. The best state will clearly be that which has the most loyal citizens, and the more the devoted mind for legality is lost, so much the more will the state, this system of morality, this moral life itself, be diminished in force and quality. With the good citizens, the good state too perishes, and dissolves into anarchy and lawlessness. Respect for the law By this cement the total of the state is held together. The law is sacred, and he who affronts it a criminal. Without crime, no state. The moral world, and this the state is, is crammed full of scamps, cheats, liars, thieves, etc. Since the state is the lordship of law, its hierarchy, it follows that the egoist in all cases where his advantage runs against the state's can satisfy himself only by crime a state cannot give up the claim that its laws and ordinances are sacred at this the individual ranks as the unholy barbarian natural man egoist over against the state exactly as he once was regarded by the church before the individual the state takes on the nimbus of a saint thus It issues a law against duelling two men who are both at one in this that they are willing to stake their life for a cause no matter what are not to be allowed this because the state will not have it it imposes a penalty on it where is the liberty of self-determination then it is at once quite another situation if as e g in north america Society determines to let the duellists bear certain evil consequences of their act, e.g., withdrawal of the credit hitherto enjoyed. To refuse credit is everybody's affair, and if a society wants to withdraw it for this or that reason, the man who is hit cannot therefore complain of enroachment on his liberty. The society is simply availing itself of its own liberty. That is no penalty for sin, no penalty for a crime. The duel is no crime there, but only an act against which the society adopts countermeasures, resolves on a defence. The state, on the contrary, stamps the duel as a crime, i.e. as an injury to its sacred law. It makes a criminal case. The society leaves it to the individual's decision whether he will draw upon himself evil consequences and inconveniences by his mode of action, and hereby recognises his free decision. The state behaves in exactly the reverse way, denying all right to the individual's decision and instead ascribing the sole right to its own decision. The law of the state, so that he who transgresses the state's commandment is looked upon as if he were acting against God's commandment, a view which likewise was once maintained by the church. Here God is the holy in and of himself, and the commandments of the church as of the state are the commandments of this holy one, which he transmits to the world through his anointed and lords by the grace of God. If the church had deadly sins, The state has capital crimes. If the one had heretics, the other has traitors. The one ecclesiastical penalties, the other criminal penalties. The one inquisitorial process, the other fiscal. In short, their sins, here crimes. Their inquisition and here inquisition. Will the sanctity of the state not fall like the churches? the awe of its laws the reverence for its highness the humility of its subjects will this remain will the saint's face not be strict of its adornment what a folly to ask of the state's authority that it should enter into an honourable fight with the individual and as they express themselves in the matter of freedom of the press share sun and wind equally if the state this thought is to be a de facto power, it simply must be a superior power against the individual. The state is sacred and must not expose itself to the impudent attacks of individuals. If the state is sacred, there must be censorship. The political liberals omit the former and dispute the interference, but in any case they concede repressive measures to it. For, they stick to this, that state is more than the individual and exercises a justified revenge called punishment. Punishment has a meaning only when it is to afford expiation for the injuring of a sacred thing. If something is sacred to anyone, he certainly deserves punishment when he acts as its enemy. A man who lets a man's life continue in existence because to him it is sacred, and he has a dread of touching, it is simply a religious man. Whitling lays crime at the door of social disorder, and lives in the expectation that under communistic arrangements, crimes will become impossible, because the temptations to them, e.g. money, fall away. As, however, his organized society is also exalted into a sacred and inviolable one. He miscalculates in that good-hearted opinion, e.g., with their mouth-professed alliance to the communistic society, but worked underhand for its ruin, would not be lacking. Besides, waitling has to keep on with curative means against the natural remainder of human diseases and weaknesses, and curative means always announced to begin with that individual's will be looked upon as called to a particular salvation, and hence treated according to the requirements of this human calling. Curative means, or healing, is only the reverse side of punishment. The theory of cure runs parallel with the theory of punishment. If the latter sees in an action a sin against right, the former takes it for a sin of the man against himself as a decadence from his health. But the correct thing is that I regard it either as an action that suits me, or as one that does not suit me, as hostile or friendly to me, i.e., that I treat it as my property which I cherish or demolish. Crime or disease are not either of them an egoistic view of the matter, i.e., a judgment starting from me, but starting from another, To wit, whether it injures right, general right, or the health partly of the individual, the sick one, partly of the generality, society, crime is treated inexorably, disease with loving gentleness, compassion, etc. End of section 26. Recording by Elaine Webb, Bristol, England.